I do see a massive reduction of unplanned sick days. And in fact, I don't know if we've had one in this year, for example. Wow. They are all, they take time off, don't get me wrong, yeah. but they are planned. And I love that. Mm. You're listening to the Small Business Mastermind, a podcast created by Olympia Benefits to help small businesses juggle business, finance, health, and wellness. I'm your host, Morgan Berna. While they're not an entirely new concept, employee wellness programs have been receiving mixed attention from employers, researchers, and the media over the last couple years. On the one hand, they're promoted as an avenue to a healthier and more productive workforce. But on the other, some suggest these programs have little impact, with some going as far as to claim that these programs lead to discriminatory hiring practices. As an employer, it can be confusing to determine whether you should be creating this type of program at all, and if you have one, whether or not it's effective. On this episode, we'll speak with Michelle Berg, who's the CEO and leading lady of Elevated HR Solutions, as well as Dr. Paul Terry, who's a senior fellow at Hero and the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Health Promotion, to sort through some of the confusion regarding the effectiveness of these programs and to give you actionable advice to either start a program from scratch or improve on the one you currently have. We'll talk about what an employee wellness program is, how to create one that works for your unique company, and what realistic outcomes you can expect from the program. Our conversation begins with Michelle Berg. Established in 2010, Michelle Berg has been the leading lady and CEO of Elevated, an organization that helps attract, develop, and retain top talent by designing workplace strategies and programs where employees and employers thrive. In 2015, she won the notable award in Calgary for entrepreneurship. In 2016, she was selected as one of 20 top leaders in Calgary by Business in Calgary magazine, as well as headed up the HR team of the year from the Human Resources Institute of Alberta. She was named a finalist for Women of Inspiration by Canadian Business Chicks in 2017, and in 2018, she won the HR Firm of the Year by Canada Law magazine. Prior to starting Elevated, she was the Senior Vice President of HR for a land development company and was responsible for flying around the world terminating people. That's when she quickly realized her soul needed a massage, and it was time to build something greater than herself. She credits her success to an amazing husband and five-year-old, along with pivoting quickly through bad decisions and total transparency through her own mental wellness journey. When I began my research, I was initially thinking, you know, I don't work in HR, I I work in marketing, I've never done anything like this. To me, thinking about employee wellness program, I thought, you know, free lunches, yoga, that sort of thing, (laughs) which is very, very basic. And as I was researching more, I was finding that most people say there's really five elements of a comprehensive program. So health education, a supportive social, physical environment, uh, integration of the program into the organization structure, Mm -hmm. linking employees to related programs, um, worksite screenings and education. So it's a lot more into the culture and the overall yeah, the overall climate, I suppose, of the business. Is that the angle you would take when discussing this with someone? Or what angle do you kind of come from to to give the scope of a wellness program? I think that when I usually start, I, I certainly don't start, again, our employee base is, is typically as small as five to 100. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes down to analytics and things that organizations are 
looking at, especially that size. Mm-hmm. Um, when people come to me and say, hey, we need a new wellness program or we'd like to do something around wellness, something's happened in their organization to usually kick it off or start it off. Mm-hmm. So even just, I, I think it was as recent as yesterday, we actually had uh, one of our clients had somebody who self-harmed over the weekend. And I had been talking about wellness and doing something around wellness because the way we approach it is usually is health and wellness. A lot of organizations will say it's health and safety. We look at it as health and wellness. So I'd been talking to them a lot about it mm-hmm. and some various programs that they could do. But until something real had happened um, on their site, they it was one of those things that were a back burner thing mm-hmm. for them. So so for me, when we look at it, it's it's a real time, and this is what most small businesses do, it's a real time in the moment thing going, okay, wait, I don't want that to happen again. Yes. So how do we prevent that from happening again? That's that's yeah. typical. Okay. Um, but in general, because again, when we take a look at a full HR program, health and wellness is part of it, we start doing little things, little drip campaigns around mm-hmm. what wellness is. And it can be as little as these five tips are better for you all the way through to Fitbit competitions and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, I think for me, we, we certainly don't look at it with a because it is a small business, we don't look at it with a principled framework. Mm -hmm. We look at it, what is one small pivot that we can make today to make a difference? What got you initially interested in employee wellness? I think what interested me originally in in wellness was just, I know for myself, I've had my individual, my own individual issues as an entrepreneur. It's probably the hardest thing uh, to do is balance a business, balance a family. and so for me, it's always been something that's really near and dear to me. I, I suffered um, a lot from postpartum after having my daughter five years ago. And and I knew that there just had to be a different way to do wellness or approach wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I've always known it's something that's important to have in an organization from that perspective. Prior to that, when I was running HR for larger organizations, um, it, it, that was in 2010. I would say that it wasn't even it wasn't even on the radar yet. Was wellness in 2010? Yeah. Um, but as soon as I went through my issues, and I had so much more empathy then for you know, other employees. And what I used to get prior to 2010 was, oh, they're, they're sick again, they're faking Mm. or, you know, that kind of thing. Or the biggest wellness program I think that we had was smoking cessation programs back in the day, because then their benefits programs would go down. Right. So that was the precedence was how can we save money? It wasn't about being proactive at all. It was a a completely reactive thing. So for me though, when I went through postpartum, I I was thinking, okay, how can we, how can we fix this for for other employees? And so for me, it was, I guess, my own individual experience. And then we've played around um, with different wellness programs. And again, having the experience we've had serving 60 different clients across Alberta, we've had to get creative with what wellness looks like. Mm -hmm. And, and, and because I'm usually given very small budgets, um, we've had to get really creative within it. And I really enjoy that creativity piece. And what it came down to for me was really just talking about it. Yeah. And if we can get organizations feeling safe about talking about it, it's one thing to say, hey, you can come and talk to me, but then do the other side of arm people with what to say back when someone comes to you with something. Yeah. If we can build programs like that, we're going to get it. We're going to move wellness and the whole idea, specifically mental wellness, further ahead. Absolutely. And, and, and so, yeah. So, And I guess wellness isn't just about 
mental wellness either. It is there. There is everything as it relates to. I mean, it can be your health, fitness. It can be you know that. What's the other side? I mean, I always, I actually also think financial wellness is a big part of wellness oh, in, in general. Absolutely, um, it leads to tons of stress. Yeah. So I think I've always just wanted to be creative within the space and do something different, knowing that it actually will impact the long the long term effects. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point you make that companies look at it sometimes from one dimension. So maybe just looking at how can we reduce our sick days or yeah, how can we reduce uh, spending on benefits, something like that. What are companies risking by looking at it with such a one-dimensional lens? Well, I think um, long-term employee engagement, first and foremost, a loyalty to the company. I know that intuitively, I think we all know that if, if an employer cares about their employees, chances are that and they and they demonstrate that they care, chances are they're going to show that back even within customer care. An employee is going to be much less likely to leave if they know their, their employer's care. So that's one. I mean, I think they could save a, a, a ton on costs, even just from a recruitment perspective. Yeah. When they look at it from, I want to reduce my sick time, I don't know if that's actually... We usually say, well, no, actually, what if we looked at the opposite way? And what if we reduced the... Uh, reactive reasons why people are are using their sick days and look at it. What about planning proactive wellness days and the use of those, knowing that people um, do have a lot of issues with, you know, just getting their life together. And so if we can count it saying, hey, actually, if people are proactively scheduling their time to go handle their stuff, they're going to be a much more productive employee. Mm -hmm. So I think organizations who aren't thinking about wellness in that way are actually really suffering in terms of productivity or reducing that productivity, which means then they're reducing overall revenues that they would have access to, too. Do you believe that wellness starts with getting buy-in from the leadership team? Is that typically where you would start with the company? Oh, I think with any program for it to be super successful, you definitely do need leadership buy-in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, that's intuitive. But to say, oh, my leader doesn't buy into this, so I can't do anything. I think that's a, a really victim-like mentality. And I think the best is is when, sometimes when leaders are skeptical, um, just starting off small. Like again, you don't have mm-hmm. to go out there and spend a ton of money on any of these programs. It is as simple as having a conversation, bringing in a speaker at lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our clients simply put a, this is my wellness goal for the year at the bottom of their performance reviews. And that's as far as it went. Yeah. Um, because as soon as that they make their, you, you know, they make it known and actionable what their goal is and they tell somebody the chances of them actually making that goal is that much higher. So, you know, we, and we didn't make it, it wasn't mandatory. Um, so if you just want to try certain things out and see where they land, I mean, at least even just starting the conversation is such a good thing and it opens up to new possibilities. But again, you're not, you don't have to have total buy-in. You just even start a run group, start a, start a book club. Those are all ways of actually supporting wellness in general. And you don't need leadership buy-in to do that either. And once you have some data or some metrics that say, hey, actually, I think that this is really supporting us, leadership will probably buy in more. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, it is always easiest when you do have leadership buy-in. We'd ideally have it, but, but don't, be afraid to take care of yourself exactly you're maybe not getting the bind does the the size of the business matter so you say you work from businesses sort of of all sizes <laughs> do, when you're working with a smaller company 
do they ever say like, oh, are we too small for this kind of program? Does that come up? Um, I would say that the smaller you are, the easier it is to build any kind of program mm -hmm. and, and then just build it so that you can scale and grow with it. Um, it the smaller you are, the more inexpensive certain things are. Um, <laughs> I mean, when we first started and we did a, I bought a Fitbit for every single person in the office. And when we started, we were six people big. Um, I have another story about the Fitbit program. I wouldn't actually recommend it. <laughs> but but the, 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 the thing is, is, you know, so whatever, that was $90 at the time. Well, for five or six people, that was not a big deal. It didn't hurt my budget. It certainly would have had we grown, mm -hmm. right, for example. Um, but it is easier to try things out and kind of innovate and, and pivot as required when you are smaller. But being open to it when you're smaller means that the conversation continues as you grow. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share that story? Just <laughs> I know you have lots of examples of oh, things that have worked, and we'll get yeah. more into that, but yeah. you told me a bit about that, and I thought it was really funny. <laughs> well, I just, yeah, so the point was, you know, I thought if we could get everyone walking, this was a good thing, and I'm highly, highly competitive, and so, uh, I mean, that's an easy buy-in for me as well, and so... But what I didn't know when I first started the program is that there's literally this thing that you can go into on Google and how to get steps with your Fitbit. So if you go and you Google it, it'll say, put it in the laundry, um, put it on your dog, <laughs> put it on, and then you get all these steps. And it was actually even geared towards Fitbit. Oh, you're in a competition with your work. This is how you can win. And I just, and I realized after I had done something like 35,000 steps in Chicago and I still wasn't winning, somebody has read that Google site as well on our team. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so basically when I didn't win it, the whole competition after that, I, I decided that this was just not for us <laughs> and I needed something more, uh, more fair, if you will. That's so true though. I feel like I'd look for a way to scam it too. <laughs> I wouldn't think of doing the laundry, though. That's smart. I was, yeah, I mean, so. I have to give it to them for that. <laughs> so, of course, there's going to be a little bit of trial and error with any of this. Is this something that you'd recommend every company is focusing on? Yeah, one of the things, actually, by the end of November as well, every single one of our employees will have um, what's called first aid for mental health. And... Mm -hmm. And even just that, that investment in itself where people are going to feel more armed and better about A, talking about their own wellness as well as others' wellness. And it's not just because we are, obviously, we're a human resources company, but I'm getting every single person to go through it. Mm -hmm. And and I think just that investment of them knowing that A, we care and that stuff happens, um, that that we're open to that. I think if we can be a really good example for our other organizations, that's what was really important to me. Um, I do see a massive reduction of unplanned sick days. And in fact, I don't know if we've had one in this year, for example. Wow. They are all, they take time off, don't get me wrong, yeah. but they are planned and I love that. Mm. Um, so, so for us, putting that investment has been, I can see the return on investment. It's probably not a perfect line, um, but, I, but I intuitively know it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think, I think all companies could consider it. it. It certainly is, again, an inexpensive way to support trust initiatives, communication initiatives, um, which leads, again, to higher engagement. Well, it makes me think of a lot of the... I've been reading lots of blog articles and things kind of about this topic and 
almost none of them mention issues with mental health. A lot of them just talk about, like you said, sick days, Mm -hmm. nutrition, this Mm -hmm. and that. And there is a lot of fun in wellness. There's, there's tons of fun you can have with the programs, but that's a good point that it really is. It's, it's people's health at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It's a big component of it. And there's a, like a tremendous benefit from really taking a look at the different areas of your employees' health. Yeah, and just I, I think it's a full circle. So whether it is yeah, exactly nutrition or whether it is weight management or mm-hmm. or or whether it is um, you know, family dynamics can you know, hurt employees' health at times. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, at the end of the day, you have to look at it holistically and and look at them as a person and when you know, now we're connected and far more connected than we've ever been in terms of technology, yet people are feeling that much more alone mm-hmm. than ever before. Clearly, we need to do something to help reconnect. And, and whatever that looks like, you can do it in lots of different ways and you can have lots of different fun with it. Um, but it is important, I think, to just keep keep going at it and not sweep it under the rug like we typically see. Absolutely. I'm curious if you get when you're talking to a new company about their wellness and maybe you're talking to them about their culture. Is there any pushback you typically get? Do people get um, defensive about putting these programs in or do they, do they deny needing it? Oh, we get lots of pushback and definitely lots of denying it um, or, or denying needing it. And, and in fact, if people are going to have mental health issues, they, there's still a lot of conversations around. I just wish they wouldn't tell me or if they know, before it gets too far, maybe we should just let them go. I mean, it's because they mm-hmm. care about their benefits and, oh, our benefits costs going to go through the roof and our, you know, all these things. And they think that the costs are too much to have someone um, on your team like that. But the truth is there are more people that are struggling with certain things that you will never know. You'll look at someone and you can't tell whether or not they've got, they've got problems or they're going through things. Mm-hmm. And so again, building a culture that is based on trust and based on, and, and you have to have vulnerability in order to build trust. As long as they know that you're going to take care of them, nine times out of 10, that employee is going to take care of you too. Mm-hmm. It, they People aren't inherently evil. No. You know? Yes, I've got stories there too. But (laughs) in general, people are not inherently evil. And so as long as you are working towards taking care of them, um, because, again, they take their work home, Mm -hmm. um, and it isn't just this place that you go to anymore, nine to five. They've got to know that you you see them as a whole person, not just the person that shows Mm -hmm. up for work every day. And I think, too, for employees, sometimes they don't know when things are going on with themselves, sometimes it can be hard to recognize in ourselves. Um, we did a previous episode about burnout, for example, mm. um, and me doing that interview, it gave me some insight into right. times in my life where I felt like that. And I've talked to other people who've listened as well. And I wouldn't have been able to point out that that's how I was feeling, mm-hmm. but having a culture at work where we kind of talk about that sort of thing and mm-hmm. we, we set an expectation that we want people to feel good and motivated. And if mm-hmm. they're not, it's okay, but we have a plan. We can help you, this sort of thing. I think that's very helpful because, yeah, we kind of assume also that employees know why they're feeling bad and what's going on and they can deal with it on their own. Yeah, we've actually gone so far as to build out what we call mental health plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically it's a, it's a form that every single employee fills out that when I'm stressed, this is what I look like. Mm. This is what I'm feeling. 
and some of the things, and then, and then we have two way conversation of, I've been told I'm more erratic or I've been told I'm X, Y, or Z. And so you, you paint this picture of what that looks like. And then what we get the employee to do is actually give permission for their colleagues or their team members or their managers to, to, it's almost like a safe word and Mm -hmm. to point it out, to say, Hey, I care about you. These are the things that I'm noticing. And there's an escalation piece that we've, that they've written out, they've bought into. And again, this costs no money at all to implement, but they've written it out. And so in one case too, where we know that it actually gets, we've got one employee who sometimes will get off their meds when they feel like they're doing really well. And so they've given us permission to actually go call their husband when we're noticing these things, because typically that's what's happening is when they are falling off the wagon, if you will. Um, if we can get a team around them to, to show them that we care and put this into play, they've now given us permission when they are of sound mind and maybe not when things are going so bad. Yeah. And it has just been... Um, we, well, I just know in, in that particular case... Um, she feels safe because she knows that her team is looking out for her yeah, as I was well. Say, it must feel wonderful to know that there's people completely people watching and caring and caring and yeah. genuinely caring. And, and so that's, that's probably one of my favorite plans. And we've done the similar thing where we've had um, employees go um, because of an addiction. And so when they come back and they had to come back a few times and they've gone through treatment a few times and it's very, it's very real that that's what happens. You fall off the wagon. And so in this case, again, they wrote down the whole plan. And now we've had someone that we can call as soon as we start seeing some of those erratic behaviors happen. And again, as a team that is both the family and work, we've been able to beat the addiction before it gets to that mm-hmm. point where they're off to treatment again. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are my favorite stories around this. Yeah, that's that's so great. Instead of people feeling like they have to hide it or, yeah, just disappearing for who knows what and maybe losing their job. Exactly. Exactly. It comes down to trust and vulnerability and, and that very much has to live in the culture in order to build plans like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's something that if an organization can commit to, again, they will see the return on investment with loyalty, productivity, and, and all those great things that em- great employee engagement brings. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, okay, but do these programs work? There's been a lot of confusion online, particularly over these past couple years with the release of two studies that gained popularity for their findings that employee wellness programs don't work. However, while well done, there were issues with the scope of these studies and a lot of assumptions were made based off their findings. Dr. Paul Terry wrote an article titled, Workplace Health Promotion is Growing Up, but Confusion Remains About What Constitutes a Comprehensive Approach. I was able to get Dr. Terry on the phone to help clear up the confusion about employee wellness programs and get his advice about creating an effective program. Dr. Paul Terry is a senior fellow at the Health Enhancement Research Organization, also known as HERO, where he collaborates with HERO members and national experts in planning learning events and supports the HERO team in organizing the annual forum, think tanks, and webinars. Terry preceded Karen Mosley as HERO's president. Before HERO, Terry was president and CEO at Staywell Health Management, and before Staywell, he served as president and CEO at the Park Nicolette Institute. He earned his PhD from the University of Minnesota and his master's from Minnesota State University at Mankato, where he was honored with the Distinguished Alumni Humanitarian Award. 
Terry is editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Health Promotion and is past president of the Minnesota Public Health Association. He serves on advisory councils for the National Academy of Sciences, the American Heart Association, the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and the University of North Carolina, Gillings School of Global Public Health. Prevention programs that Dr. Terry developed won the C. Everett Coop National Health Award. Alongside his wife, Gail, and his children, Anna and Will, Paul loves rowing, windsurfing, sailing, kayaking, camping, hiking, biking, and cross-country skiing. I came across uh, your article, Workplace Health Promotion is Growing Up, but Confusion Remains About What Constitutes a Comprehensive Approach, when I was looking into some research about these employee wellness programs. And our company, we work with primarily small business. And so this is something that We've heard clients and prospects expressing interest in, they want to do it, they want more information about it. But when I was doing my research, I was finding a lot of the information was quoting, you know, a couple of studies that had come out these past couple of years that either said these programs are just not effective at all, or that they really have very diminished results for the companies. And I wanted to hear from you what some of the main issues you've seen happening with the research being done around the effectiveness of employee wellness programs. Yeah, you're uh, you're probably referring to a couple of studies that were picked up by the media just in this past year, one by uh, a gentleman named uh, Song with a woman named uh, Baker, both from uh, Harvard, and another by the University of Illinois, both are excellent researchers. Both are impressive in terms of the number of metrics that they were examining, the uh, number of, uh, of uh, variables that they were interested in. Unfortunately, both, uh, in my estimation, don't really represent anything resembling a comprehensive approach to a worksite uh, health motion initiative. I just read your LinkedIn piece online. I just reposted it, uh, Morgan, well, thank because you. I did a good job of what I have argued needs uh, more attention, and that's a social ecological approach mm-hmm. to doing worksite wellness. And you described nicely in your article how certainly providing a program is uh, useful and providing some uh, educational offerings are useful. That's the, the core of what these two studies examined was offering educational classes or offering an educational program. But what you argue so nicely in your LinkedIn piece is that there are many best practices elements that have a lot more to do with the culture in which these programs are offered, have a lot to do with the business strategy that you're embarking on, have a lot to do with whether or not the very way that you organize your company and the very way that you organize your employee benefits has more to do with whether or not employees in the large population, the population rich, writ large, will benefit from these approaches. And the articles I write for the American Journal of Health Promotion are very aligned, Morgan, with the points you made about a uh, comprehensive approach usually has multiple elements. Uh, these mm-hmm. studies that you're re- re- referring to had two out of the five to ten elements that we talked about. The two yeah. elements that they usually study is taking a health screening at the population level offering some health classes or health programs, which is exactly what they studied, you know, anywhere between 15 or 20, and in one case, 35% of the employees took advantage of the education programs. Unfortunately, most of them only took advantage of one or two modules. And then these researchers went on to do an extensive evaluation again of the whole population. So they have a whole population baseline set of measures, an intervention that was relatively modest, 
and targeted at individual volunteers who would like to show up for a class. And then they, a year later, went and measured the health of the whole population again. So that's really not a comprehensive approach. That's not a socio-ecological approach, as you argued for in your uh, LinkedIn piece. So I think that's the issue. It's it's a missed opportunity, in my view, Morgan, to have mm-hmm. great researchers with such impressive batteries of metrics, essentially a, uh, a study a program-only approach to health promotion and not get involved with the other things that you talked about, which is culture change, environmental support, leadership support, mm-hmm. champion networks. You did a good job of describing the importance of getting the employees and their voice and their values into the mix of what it is that we ought to work on together. So that's yeah. what's missing in these studies. It sounds like it's pretty common for companies to really only look at one or two elements of the wellness. So say... Yeah, well, you know what? There's a national survey that examined that very question. I was pleased to publish it in the American Journal of Health Promotion, the journal that I'm the editor-in-chief for. The first author of that research is a woman named Laura Lanan. In 2004, she did a national survey of worksite health promotion programs. Hundreds of companies responded to her questions about what is your approach? How comprehensive is it? Do you do strategic planning? Do you have leadership support? Is this integrated with other business elements? She found in 2004 that only 7%, 7% of companies in the nation do anything resembling a comprehensive approach to wellness. Gladly, she re, uh, finally repeated that study in 2017. So now 13 years later, she okay. did the same study. She included more small uh, companies. And uh, what she found is now we've, we've grown in our okay. approach <laughs> to wellness, but she found at best 17% when she mm-hmm. included all these small companies she added to her new sample were doing uh, the five, uh, in their case, they had five elements that they called a comprehensive approach. If you had actually compared it to an original sample that didn't have as many small companies, then I'm afraid only 12%. So we went from 7% to 12% of companies in the nation who in that survey do comprehensive approaches. So you're right, Morgan, that the usual work, you know, we're talking uh, 85 plus percent of companies who say they do wellness programs actually do what I described earlier. They might do a screening, they might do some health education classes, and then they'll do a screening again and say, oh, did we move the whole population or not? And of course, if that's your approach, it's unlikely the whole population is going to change because percent of people took some classes. The thing to qualify there is a health educator by training is that's not to diss health education programs. In fact, I would say it's the best place to start to change a culture is to start offering some education programs. Smokers quit in smoking cessation programs. People with stress learn stress management skills in health education programs. People are struggling with their weight or nutrition. They actually make good healthy eating choices because of health education classes. So there's nothing wrong with that 20 or 30% of people who volunteer into these classes, the study by Song, for example, said very robust improvements for those who took the classes. So that's great. We're all for classes. If you're going to say we're trying to change the health of the whole population, you certainly could start with classes, but that's not, as your article said, that's not go on to try to change the culture writ large. And something you had mentioned in your article was uh, some of the importance of leadership buy-in. How important is it for the leadership to be not only uh, encouraging these programs, but participating as well. Yeah. You know, I wish it wasn't so important, Morgan. I, I've had a personal conviction that we have to, in this health promotion field, try to figure out, like social movements in the country writ large, we have to figure out 
how to build them more bottom up, how to have more of a grassroots movement that can yeah. move society because we all are backing a better environment, for example, like our youth are doing. They have a grassroots leadership movement going on to try to get those adults to wake up to the importance of saving the world. Yeah. Uh, we don't have great examples of that uh, in the worksite wellness movement. Uh, unfortunately, our hero scorecard, which is a free instrument that people can take to kind of evaluate best practices they are or aren't using in their approach, finds over and over that when you have strong leadership support, the other metrics tend to fall into place. You have better outcomes, you have better participation, you have better pretty much everything if your leaders are really behind it and enthusiastic about it. Having said that, uh, no one argues that that's not critical, but as I've already uh, alluded to, I'm quite fascinated in those programs and initiatives that really spend a lot of time on champion networks. At our conference for HERO, a couple of examples that we featured are University of Michigan. They have a very robust, they shoot for 5% of the whole population have employees getting involved with uh, being champions for these initiatives. Mayo uh, Clinic, uh, under Kaisa uh, Anderson's uh, leadership there, also has a goal of 5%. Imagine that, a, a, a population of 40,000 employees, let's say. Yeah. 5% is a big number. You know, students, yeah. 3,000 champions that they're trained, cultivated, and getting active at the department level and trying to be the person who's trying to get better food choices into the uh, cafeteria or trying to get better breaks and people to take their breaks, trying to kind of get people out walking. So grassroots movement, I think, has not been tested as as often as we'd like. And, and uh, so the ideal scenario would be great leadership and great uh, grassroots uh, inertia to mm -hmm. Sort of shifting the responsibility off just an individual to change their behavior and making it more, it's the overall culture, the whole business is working toward it. And what you just described is uh, what most health educators are trained in. It's called a social ecological model. And it simply says in the sphere of influence, the individual does tend to be at the center in terms of whether or not they're changed and mm -hmm. will change and can change and have the high likelihood of changing. But that change likelihood is surrounded by these other circles of influence, by what the culture in your organization is, by what your neighborhood is like, by what your state is like, by what your nation is like, and by what the world is like writ large. So I think uh, you're absolutely right that the tension that those of us interested in health promotion always need to get right is the tension between individual and social responsibility for health. You know, mm -hmm. that's too often, I'm afraid, in the history of the worksite health promotion movement, the onus has been at the individual behavior change level, and that's key. But if we don't also have equal amount of energy into the social change yes. and the environmental change stuff, I think it just makes it really hard for the individual to kind of bear all the weight of, of uh, creating a healthy uh, workplace. There was some comments on there or on these articles that were saying that this could make our, our companies more inclined to hire people who are lower risk. What did you think about those comments? Yeah, that's a really troublesome, almost unnerving uh, premise that the journalists actually, I think, were a bit culpable in trying to advance, as well as the researchers. The one study you might be alluding to, mm -hmm. the researchers happen to be economists. And when I say happen to be, I don't think it's a coincidence that they did a lot of their uh, thinking and their article discussion about the cost-shifting premise behind all these programs. As you may have seen in the article I wrote, there's no evidence in yep. their article itself, that there's any 
plan for uh, what I, you know what many people would call a regressive tax, essentially uh, making the incentive such that the less healthy employees would be paying more because they're not participating in these uh, wellness programs. So there's no evidence, including within their study, uh, that there is cost shifting that was occurring. And in fact, the Song study, which was the next one, the Harvard study that got as much attention more so perhaps mm-hmm. than the Illinois study, found no such difference between uh, the participants and the non-participants. They didn't find any evidence that there was higher cost uh, mm-hmm. or healthcare utilization by participants versus non-participants. So they essentially negated the point uh, uh, that was trying to be made by the University of Illinois. I called it pernicious. That very premise is a pernicious idea that a wellness program could actually be designed to be a regressive uh, approach. Not only is it illegal, uh, mm-hmm. the cost shift, it's just unethical. I mean, what program yeah. would put together a wellness effort in the company yeah. with this sort of subtext of saying, and let's uh, let's essentially tax our overweight or our overstressed or our lonely people, or our unhappy people, you know, you name it. This little yeah. is observing any, any risk factor you want to name, the idea that an employer would say, let's sock it to our less healthy people is simply, yeah. it's not the world I live in. So I don't know where people come up with these ideas, but I work with hundreds of companies every year and uh, they're all doing it for the right reason, at least the ones I work with. Uh, there may be some yeah. bad apples around, but uh, thankfully I never have to deal with them. So it's just not in my experience, Morgan, to find anyone put these initiatives together uh, for anything but the right reasons. Yeah, I found that to be a really interesting perspective that a lot of blog articles I was reading were kind of running away with. Um, But that's good to hear in practice. People aren't doing that. I wanted to ask, so for a company that feels like they don't have a very strong culture, do they need to fix their culture first before adding in wellness programs or should it kind of all happen together? You know, it's a great question because there are folks who say fix the culture first and I get there where they're coming from. You know, wouldn't it be nice if uh, all the environments that we all work in are healthy enough that we, you know, it's easy for us to do the right, make the right healthy choices. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the world that I've worked in is not that way. And I almost feel the opposite of those who say fix the culture first before you uh, try these health education programs. I've been a health coach. In fact, as I was the CEO of a wellness company uh, in years past, I thought it was important to actually get in the saddle and uh, listen to our uh, clients who are taking advantage of health coaching because my training is in health education after all. And I would find that often it was the case that some of the employees would uh, mainly take advantage of a wellness initiative like having free access to a health coach because the employer had put a financial incentive in place. And so mm-hmm. there's an example where it's something of a culture play to say, we think this is important enough that we're going to create some financial incentive for you. What people worry about, which and I've written about this as much as anybody, the, the possibility that financial incentives can backfire and strip your intrinsic motivation, can actually replace, you know, the the right reason for doing it. And if you're doing it for the wrong reason, the sustainability of that behavior change is probably less likely. What I found, uh, thankfully, most of the time was these folks, uh, once they did have that nudge and once they did take advantage of the financial incentive and sign up, for example, with a health coach, they found that we health coaches, we didn't care about what incentive they had. We cared about what goals they wanted to accomplish. We cared yes. about what they wanted to do differently with their life. And we were there to listen and to support and, and cheer them on. And so almost invariably, as much as the incentive might have been 
you know, you got to stay on three calls to get your incentive. You know, mm-hmm. a good coach and a good relationship by call three were saying, you know, you want to keep working on this stuff together. And they'd say, yeah, this is kind of a cool benefit. Free access to a health coach. How cool is that? You know, when I started this field, health coaching would have been something only available to top executives. Same with things like health screening. If you told me 30 years into my career that all this stuff that used to be an executive perk would be available freely to all employees in these big companies, I'd say, really? That's pretty darn cool. So uh, the the answer back to your original question about, you know, is it about culture or individual behavior change? These are not competing elements. Health education mm-hmm. programs or coaching programs are a part of the culture. In fact, I would argue that they're the easiest place to start in a culture is to simply offer up health coaching, offer up health education programs. Yeah. It's not the end game, of course, as we discussed earlier, but it's a great way to start. I found as a health coach that sometimes my most challenging and interesting and in many ways successful uh, health coaching uh, participants worked in toxic environments, you know, that yeah. they were taking advantage of the health coach because they wanted to dump on me about how hard it was to be healthy in the place that they're working. And I think in our field, if there's any sea change going on, I love that if in the early decades of this uh, work in worksite wellness, it really was about individual interventions and trying to help people change their individual health habits. Mm-hmm. As often as not, and that'll make them a better worker, as often as not, uh, the discussions we have in our think tanks and our conferences is how do you change the work itself? How do you change the work yeah. environment itself such that change is easier at the individual level? So it's almost a, a, a big sea change flip, but it's one that I think in the end we'll get both of them going, good individual interventions, good environmental change interventions. And when we get both of those uh, working equally well, I think we're going to be in, uh, uh, much more effective. See fewer mm-hmm. studies like the last couple we saw. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to ask, so if there's a business, let's say a smaller business, and they're looking to get started with some employee wellness, where would you recommend they start? Well, I loved your article again. I commend they read your article first, Morgan, because what you said, essentially, uh, my read on it was start with the employee's needs and values. So let me tell you the Institute of Medicine's definition of patient-centered care that applies to person-centered health promotion. It's care that is respectful of and responsive to patient preferences, needs, and values, and assures that patient values drive all medical decision-making. Mm-hmm. So that definition is a mouthful, but it essentially says what your article said, that if you really want a robust approach to health and well-being in your workplace, start with the employees, start with their voices, get them involved in strategic planning, get them involved as champions and really get them uh, to help tell you, you know, what you can do to help. And if that means, you know, change part of my job, change part of my schedule, change part of my work flexibility, change part of, you know, how we do the work here, then, you know, get ready to hear that because that's what your job is to be responsive to the employees and what they're, how the culture is going. And it also would be, you know, give us better uh, food choices. Give us more opportunities for cooking classes. Give us a farmer's market outside uh, when we walk out the door. Uh, so they'll come up with uh, great ideas. Let me also answer your question by telling you the textbook definition of health education itself. So the textbook says health education is any combination of learning experiences designed to facilitate voluntary adaptations of actions conducive to health. 
Mm-hmm. That too is a mouthful, but you might have heard a couple of key words in there. One is it's a combination of learning experiences. It's not one thing. It's not a class or a coach or a change in the in the um, policy at work. It's all these combinations of things that you try over time. You heard me emphasize the word voluntary. You know, we yes. kind of want to do this stuff. You can't sort of put a, any incentive, no matter how big, to get me to quit smoking if I don't want to quit smoking. But it's, it's so it's not one thing. It's a combination of a growing experiences. It has to be voluntary. They have to be ready, and you have to find the thing that they're ready to do. So yeah. um, I hope that's a helpful answer. But again, they want the real answer. Read Morgan's article on LinkedIn. <laughs> If you'd like to take a look at the article that Dr. Terry's mentioning there, it's called Do Employee Wellness Programs Actually Work? And I'll leave the link for it in the description of this podcast. And you can also find it by visiting olympiabenefits.com slash blog. Okay, so knowing that there's theory and that these programs do work is great, but how do you actually turn that into practice? I talked to Michelle Berg a bit more about this. So let's from that naturally move into implementing one of these programs. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a business and I've never done something like this, I've just never thought about it. You know, we have say like a health plan for our employees, but we've never really (laughs) thought of this wellness thing. I imagine from what we're talking about here, you'd want to sort of look at your overall culture first and then determine some areas where you could work off of. Is that the approach you would take? Yeah, especially a smaller organization, I would probably involve them as a leader. I would say, hey, I really want to, I've been noticing X, I really want to get to Y. Can we come up with some ideas together? Um, I know in some organizations we've started wellness committees Mm -hmm. um, who have established what is our goal. So maybe it's just four events a year. Um, But as much as leadership buy-in needs to be there, employee buy-in also needs to be there yes. for it to continue. And so asking them their opinion is super important. I had one client who loved yoga. Uh, she's the executive director of an organization. She loves yoga. She thinks yoga is everything. She's gone, you know, I think she could even be a yogi. <laughs> and so she came in guns a-blazing saying, we're going to do yoga every week. And she thought that was a great benefit. But the buy-in, there was only two people that showed up every week. And, and, and in fact, some people said, actually, yoga makes me feel really uncomfortable. I don't feel like I can actually, you know, I'm not flexible. I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then when the instructor comes around and they touch me, I don't like being touched. So that really, you know, I love the idea of yoga too. Well, I personally don't love the, but I love the idea that she had <laughs> for her organization yeah. and, and thought it should go over well. But when it fell so flat, that really just taught me again, too, oh, man, yeah, we need to ensure that we incorporate Mm -hmm. the majority and what's going to work for them and that culture. And because it's not a one size fits all kind of program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think there's some concern there that if you just implement something, like you said, implanting just a, a yoga class, something without really consulting all the employees and seeing what everyone wants, I imagine you risk alienating the people who might need these wellness programs more maybe someone isn't comfortable exercising in a group setting yes maybe someone does have some mental health issues they'd like to deal with but they're not comfortable going to say a a seminar about it at lunch Mm -hmm. Um, so really being mindful of where your team's at yeah and and being okay too on the flip side I always say too is maybe if you don't have buy-in right away but you got to demonstrate that you you're going to keep up with it you're going to keep up the conversation mm-hmm. that helps too um so we get we get a lot of false starts in a lot of ways and then we also get the oh, I just give up I was trying to do something good kind of thing and then yeah just make sure you know what your plan is and then you got to stick to it yep 
Are there things that shouldn't be included in a company wellness program? I really struggle with the weight loss programs Mm -hmm. that I've been seeing. Um, I think there too, because it's all predicated typically on sharing how heavy you are. Yep. Um, And that's just a number. Just always think about the risk of alienation. Um, and what that looks like. And that can look like even from sharing around the circle. Um, You have to have, when you're sharing about mental wellness, you have to have a really safe organization where it's not going to be used uh, or employees could be targeted because of what they decide to share. Uh, Leadership has to really make sure that if they want to go down that path, there might be some things they don't want to hear. And... um, Again, I think that risk, I personally think that that risk is is so small, but it does come up and employers need to be aware of, of, of those mm-hmm. factors. Yeah, so as a company is looking at their culture and kind of deciding what to do, make sure the things you settle on trying are things you actually would like to follow through with. Yeah. Because like you said, yeah, something could be said or something could come up that you might not have considered. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I feel like it's easy because again, I've, I've talked a lot about my postpartum depression and how that has continued to affect me. Um, I've, I've been very vocal about it. So it's easy for me to go down that path with my team, mm-hmm. but I know that there is a ton of trepidation, even for new employees, when they join your organization, they always look at me and go, is this for real? Like, is this actually safe? We can actually say these kinds of things. And we're a human resources company. Yeah. So again, just understanding that not everyone feels comfortable to share, um, that's okay too. Would you say there's areas, we talked a little bit about mental health. Are there other areas or is mental health one of the areas companies overlook more when they're looking into a wellness program? Yeah, I think mental health is still very new on the scene as Mm -hmm. it relates to wellness. I think when you still hear about wellness programs, it is very much the fitness um, side of things. That's what I see most. I think there's still so much trepidation and people are scared of Mm -hmm. mental wellness um, or or having conversations around it. Because again, I don't think we're doing enough to equip people to have those conversations. So I, I... I definitely still see that it's a lot easier to say, I'm going to go walk around the block for three weeks, you know, three mm-hmm. times a week than it is to say, I'm going to go see my psychologist once a week. Yeah. And, and I think even too, where I, I still see like the finance side, I see such a stress on most people, um, but people are also scared to talk about that too, mm-hmm. especially in an open environment, especially with their colleagues. Um, but I see that as a, as a total total picture. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think when people think wellness, Oh, we've got a wellness program. We do, you know, something fitness related, that's typical. And there's still a lot of work to be done on the mental wellness side. Can a company with quite a small budget implement an employee wellness program that is effective and is helpful? Um, I do believe that a company of any size, uh, and any budget can implement a wellness program because at the end of the day, it really just starts with talking. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's going for a lunch break walk, you know, those are all things that just don't cost anything, but you need someone to spearhead and lead. Mm -hmm. And if no one's willing to take the reins, then it never happens. And so championing just that, who wants to come up with the best idea that's free and at the end of the quarter, we're going to we're going to vote on whose idea was the best, you know, and you you go try out different things and you see which ones stick. But I think again, 
the cost is really, you can get so creative that any size of organization can implement a wellness program that actually does make a difference because it just simply starts with talking about it. Mm-hmm. Can and should a company be looking to measure results from these types of programs? And if they should, do you have any metrics in mind they could look at? So let me start off actually with your question of should they? I think anytime you're doing any type of investment, you do want to know what your return on investment is. Mm -hmm. The thing with wellness programs is that there is still a lot of intangible results that are shown that you couldn't necessarily have a baseline to begin with. I mean, a lot of wellness program programs actually just bring about a culture shift. And so were you less trusting and how did you, how did you gauge that first and foremost? I, I will say that those organizations that do invest in wellness, it's almost a feeling you get when you walk in. And again, because for really good wellness programs, holistic wellness programs to be working, trust and transparency is there. You do see it. You do sense it. Yeah. Um, but things like, you know, certainly things like how often are your benefits, um, your, your group health and dental benefits are the costs rising? What were they before you started your wellness program and what are they afterwards? Um, and I, and I think it's twofold too. Sometimes with health and dental benefits, you know, people don't really want to tell (laughs) you what, what it is that are in your plan. So you don't use it, which I think is the complete (laughs) opposite reason of having a health and dental plan. Um, but knowing where you can certainly look at where they're using things and are they using more proactive things like, I would love to see my um, my drug costs go down and my massage in Cairo go up because yeah. people are being proactive with their health. Health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so those are things that you can start to look at. Then, of course, like we said, the sick the sick days. You know, do they start to drop? Mm-hmm. But instead of looking at as less sick days, again, planned. Yes. Those days that are planned sick days. I know for myself, I have a team member that I have to push getting her to take vacation time off. She has to go. It's one of her goals that I make her take one week every quarter off. And I have to push her to do it because if she does, she gets really silly when she doesn't take that time away for herself. And so even looking at your vacation and having people plan out their vacation in advance and taking that time off Mm -hmm. um, so you can look at productivity before and after those certain things. Um, I imagine retention too. Retention. I mean, retention is just, I mean, it's more than a wellness program, but it certainly could be one of the factors. Again, Mm -hmm. that's one of the intangible results because you can't say that it's totally tied to wellness, but those are all analytics that you can be looking at that, that certainly support um, Mm -hmm. the need uh, for wellness. And then even your engagement results. So if you're doing annual engagement surveys, you could even ask questions there before post, you know, pre and post your wellness program to measure, hey, is this something that you actually like? Mm-hmm. And do you see a benefit in this? Do you believe that employers have a social responsibility to keep their workforce healthy? Absolutely, I do. I think that social responsibility in general is going to be the biggest workforce trend in coming up in 2025. And you can't go out on a soapbox and say that social responsibility is something that you care about externally when you're not doing the same thing internally. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I think it's absolutely imperative because it is going to, again, it is already becoming a, a big factor in why people are choosing to go work because at certain organizations because they want to know what, the, what their stance on their corporate social responsibility is. 
And, and yeah, I think that it is absolutely imperative to be thinking about the person holistically if you're expecting them to give you so much of their life to you. How employees are treated and how they treat each other is a direct correlation to how they will treat your customers as yep. well. And again, um, Simon Sinek said it, but you know, your, your customers won't love you until your employees do first. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to demonstrate just the basic caring, empathy, again, trust, transparency. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Small Business Mastermind. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about employee wellness programs, please visit olympiabenefits.com slash blog, where you'll find many articles on the topic, including the one that Dr. Terry discussed on this episode, as well as a free ebook available for you to download. We have new episodes coming very soon, so be sure to stay tuned. I'll talk to you again soon.